0: A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery and sometimes the misery of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today, my guest is Kenji Williams, a composer and director for multimedia live theater, mixed reality, and interactive data visualization. What does that mean? Well, I met Kenji at an event in San Francisco where he showed me through VR, a view of the planet Earth that just blew my mind. It helped me to experience not only the beauty, but the interconnectivity, the fragility of planet earth. And I was absolutely blown away since that time. I have learned more from Kenji and this conversation was awesome. He talks about his journey as a multidisciplinary artist beginning at age six, as a classically trained violinist, the son of a Buddhist and a Quaker as he was raised, he pursued film. He also, Uh, Became a DJ, was in the rave culture, made a documentary about indigenous rituals, lived for a while in the psychedelic culture, did a artistic production with artist Alex Gray, also worked some with Ken Wilber. You will find this conversation useful, interesting, inspiring. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with Kenji Williams. Kenji, welcome to the School for Good Living podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's good to see you again. So we met earlier this year. I think it might have been the last day of May. We met in San Francisco at at an event that was produced by Forbes magazine. And I'm really interested to know, you were the first person I met when I walked in. We were at an event at a private residence in, in the Bay area. And I walked up four stories and you were standing right there at the top of the stairs (laughs) and you looked friendly. I would have introduced myself anyway, but we started talking and, uh, I really enjoyed getting to know you just a little bit that night and then online, but tell, will you tell me first, what were you doing at that event? Why were you there? And how did it go by the way?
1: So, uh, I was uh, invited to present, um, uh, Bella Gaia as a live thing I was actually doing a small performance at the entrance as people were walking in and then uh, was sort of giving people some VR experiences of our Bella Gaia of our show in VR and and I was really just there to to meet people I was invited um, graciously by uh, Jennifer King the the owner of the house and um, yeah it was it was sort of a uh, a a pre-conference get-together at her house. Awesome. So you just mentioned Bella Gaia, and of course,
0: we're going to talk a lot more about that. I think people who don't already know about it will be interested to learn. Before we do, though, I want to ask you a question I love to open most of my interviews with, which
1: is, what's life about? Mm. (laughs) Starting big. (laughs) I think life is about making connections, making connections with each other, with other things, uh, both physical and metaphysical, um, and and really uh, evolving, learning. We're here to learn and to progress and to become better people and to get to that next level, no matter what level you're at. And so, uh, you know, I've tried my life to, to really uh, translate that into every part of my life, including my career. And so uh, Bella Gaia in itself is translating and communicating the interconnectedness of our planet. It's all about those connections. uh, And it gives you this visceral, emotional, journey-like exploration of the interconnectedness of the planet and how we are connected to other things, everything. Um, So... Yeah. (laughs) Perhaps in a nutshell, it's about connection. Um, I happen to think
0: so too. And I know it often occurs like creating connections, but at the same time, it might be simply realizing the connections that already exist, right? Which is part of what I love about, about your work. But let me ask you, when people, when you meet someone for the first time, and I realized the answer to this might change a little bit from context to context or person to person. But generally, if somebody, if you meet somebody and they ask you, who are
1: you and what do you do? What do you tell them? <laughs> it's, um, uh, I, I, take out my phone and just show them a, a video trailer. It's, it's, it's really difficult to explain in words. I mean, um, an elevator pitch, it would be just, I'm a multimedia Theatrical immersive design director and producer, uh, of which you know my my biggest project currently is Bela Gaia, Beautiful Earth, and so I. But you know, it's it's I always inevitably bring out my phone and just show them, and then they get it. You know, so this is a, this is a challenge. Well, it's 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 both the uh, advantage and the challenge of Bela Gaia is that it's it's very unique but there isn't really a a reference point for people to really see it. And it's becoming easier actually with, with things like VR and um, the term immersive is now becoming quite well known and people are really starting to understand that, that sort of uh, vernacular. And so immersive is, is um, it's experiential. So it's, the whole point is that it's not supposed to be described with words. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I try to I try to explain as best I can, and that it's it's about transformation. I always what what does help is the story behind Belagaya, which um, yeah yeah. Tell tell me that i I've, I've, I've read about it, but of course, people listening
0: might not know. And I understand you traveled to Kazakhstan at one point. Is And I think that's part of this story. And I'm getting the sense that you have a background, like maybe you have a love for space or maybe you missed your calling as an astronaut or, or something like that. Tell me, tell me all
1: about that. Yes. Uh, well, like many boys, I, as a boy, I was fascinated by space. I loved, I mean, Star Wars was like a transformational movie for me. And I yeah, it was a dream to be an astronaut or a pilot. Um, but I guess I'm sort of... Uh, translating that in the art world i was very much i mean i was classically trained in violin since i was six years old very serious with music and uh got into composition in high school and electronics in high school but as well uh visual communication and so i actually ended up going to film school uh for for college and university where did you go I went to, I split my undergrad between um, York University in Toronto and Boulder, Colorado. CU Mm. Boulder. What was the biggest thing you took away from film school, by the way? Um, It was really about uh, working with talented people. I learned way more from from the talented students than I did from the teachers. Mm. Like what? Well, it was really... um, I mean, film, I mean, like many things you learn from doing, you know, Mm -hmm. and if you're doing surrounded by peers that are also talented, producing great ideas on the moment and just see creativity in action, um, that is really how you learn. I mean, that's, what's the most fun thing about creativity is, is creating with others and like inspiring each other, you know, uh, I think you need to be around inspiring people to to be inspired and to and to sort of reciprocate that energy. So yeah, I really um, and it was a great balance actually. York is uh, is sort of like Hollywood North, very big sound stages and um, lots of equipment. Boulder is this experimental niche. Um, he, Stan Brakhage, uh, who who has passed, but he was sort of the the uh, father of the film department there, and he's sort of this very well-known experimental film maker. Um, So CU Boulder is known for their, yeah, for their experimental, like small experimental nature. Yeah. It's kind of its own colony, right? Almost. (laughs) It is. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you've got Star Wars, you got the violin from six years old, you got film school somewhere in there, you wanted to be a pilot or an astronaut. So keep going.
1: So I was uh, I was releasing this project um, called World Spirit, which was this multimedia uh, show that we produced live in Oakland, California. It was animating this painter Alex Gray and his and his artwork uh, with me directing and producing the whole show. We did it for a live audience of two thousand. We documented it, released it as a DVD. How did you? How did you get connected with Alex and why did this become a live thing?
0: I mean, I know Alex has worked with Tool, right? But I haven't, there's not many, many visual artists or many painters that I know of that are like, hey, let's get an audience, right? And connect it with
1: some kind of experience. Tell me, how did all that come about? That was really another really interesting story. I was living in San Francisco at the time at this, at this crazy and awesome artist warehouse, like collective. What was it called? um infinite chaos (laughs) okay i'm guessing that's probably an appropriate name yeah (laughs) actually it was very there was i mean it was it was actually very well run (laughs) for a name like infinite chaos very very talented artists does it still exist i i'm not sure i don't think so it was in it was in a tenderloin i mean san francisco has gone through a really big uh gentrification as you know um but you know, a lot of great artists are still. I'm connected with them. Uh, but anyway, we did this. Uh, we did this. This almost impromptu, last minute collaboration. I was in contact with Alex, and we were like, "Hey, let's do some live performance art." I'll I'll put together some some loops and music, and uh, and project some of your paintings as a slideshow sort of a thing and you know let's just invite some people and so we did this really last minute uh, at this underground warehouse just word of mouth and I think like a hundred people showed up and basically from that underground thing in the audience was a sponsor who came forward to me and said I'd like to sponsor you to make, make this on a production level and document wow. it and sell it as a DVD.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. And somebody, somebody
1: you didn't know before.
0: Um, yes. Right. And one showing just the
1: first time you do this The first thing. time. And it was just very rough, like very, like, you know, last minute sort of a thing. And so I, um, and then we, so we produced this live show for 2000 people in Oakland. It was uh, it was, a lot of production and animation of, of Alex's artwork. Um, and he, you know, he, he does a lot of spoken word. He's written a lot of poetry. So we sort of, uh, organized the evening in, into a sort of narrative. And, uh, so there was some structure to it and, um, yeah, it was, it was extremely successful and, uh, we were releasing this as a DVD and then, at that time, this was I think around two thousand five. I was living in Tokyo at the time, releasing the Japanese version and uh and at that time, I was also uh performing at very large outdoor raves techno parties in the japanese like countryside mountain i mean the the so scene by, at you, that you time was, was amazing
0: <laughs> yeah you and i I saw some videos of you on YouTube where you seem to have really um in an innovative way merged the violin with the dj and like electronic tell me how did that
1: evolution come about how did you get how did you get into that so i was uh, i mean all through film school actually i was i i started my own label in college and was very much involved in the underground rave scene uh both in toronto and in denver and and then my actually my my film, uh, my senior film project was a documentary about rave culture and indigenous culture, the meaning of ritual and music in, in a culture, whether it's aboriginal or, uh, or future, you know, or modern. What was the biggest thing you learned from doing that project? Well, that was, again, a, a massively transformative project. I mean, I... I um it it extended well beyond my graduation actually it turned into this personal transformative journey where I traveled through the United States to the Dakotas went to reservations interviewed elders um okay. attended several powwows and sun dances any any vision quests uh did not do a vision quest but um perhaps i mean my involvement in a sundance as a uh, as a firekeeper that whole that was and that was in Oregon. I mean, I just had this crazy transformative experience. Tell, tell me about it. Well I mean, I've
0: never I've heard of sun dances, but I've never been to one. I've never participated in one. Oh
1: goodness. I mean it is um it is, you know, the most sacred ritual of the Lakotas and uh it is it is three days and nights of dancing outdoors, um to Essentially, to almost sacrifice your blood for your ancestors, for your loved ones, for your for the sick, but also to renew the cycle of life, giving back to nature. Um, but it's it's serious because you're not actually drinking or or uh, eating food for. Th- Three days and nights. I mean, it's it's wow. exhausting. Yeah, that sounds and like almost ancient. dangerous. Yeah, I was gonna. It, it, it
0: could, so, if I, if I understand right, you're merging these indigenous traditions and this ritual that has a long history with what some might see as this kind of modern, self indulgent kind of escapist rave culture, where it's almost the meeting of these two two tradition, you know, an ancient tradition with the modern search, I suppose. Is that? I mean, how how did how did that occur for you?
1: I think I think rave culture is, it's it's often um, or it was misinterpreted in many ways in the sense that there was the commercial side, but then there was very much of an underground, actually more spiritual side of rave culture, of techno culture, of trans culture, and so I was really more involved in that underground side, which for me was really the beginning of my spiritual, uh, journey, I think, you know, mm. in that, yes, I was, I was raised, uh, my father was Quaker, actually my mother, Buddhist, Japanese. And so how did, how did they meet? How did a Quaker and a Buddhist get together? <laughs> uh, they met in Japan at a, at a, um, at a, uh, social work site. I think my dad was there helping, uh, volunteering to set up um, shelters, I think, for, it was, for asylum or some sort of like, it was some sort of social activity, good works program wow. where he met mom there. Yeah. Um, so at that time, I mean, I mean, my, my dad is a total hippie uh, and uh, my mother, you know, for Japanese at that time to leave Japan and get married with a foreigner was quite radical so she's quite open-minded as well herself. Um, they've both joined me at Burning Man. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, so I have unusual parents um, and uh, love them very much. Uh, but yeah, so, so for me, rave culture, including the psychedelics attached with it, was very much of the beginning of my spiritual journey, um, bringing into account both my Buddhist background and Quaker Christian background. Um, and which is, you know, sort of how I got introduced to Alex Gray's artwork—very, very psychedelic, uh, transformative. So this documentary, uh, this documentary was about the potential, the spiritual potential of rave culture. Uh, so it wasn't really—I mean, it was very critical of rave culture too, because there's a lot of escapism and, and drug abuse in that world as well but I was really highlighting more the people, the smaller communities. And I highlighted one community, for example, called Moon Tribe in LA, where it was very non-commercial. They would go out into the desert every full moon. It's already connected to the, um, the moon cycle. And it was very like family run, but it was every, moon, every full moon. They would go out to the desert, set up a sound system and dance all night. Sounds amazing. Yeah, so and these people were very, you know, wanting to almost redefine the idea of a commune where it not it's not the 60s version of the commune but it's like okay, we all have our our normal lives, you know, we have jobs, you know, we have normal lives but we all we also have this strong community that is really needed in this modern uh disenfranchised and disconnected world. Um So this documentary explores that, but also in my visitations to uh, the Dakotas and these powwows and these interviews with these elders, just, I got some incredible quotes of Howard Badhands, for example, talking about uh, the meaning of ritual and how um, humans need ritual uh, to, to create community, but also in the uh, indigenous um, need was really to connect to nature. It was, it was to remind ourselves of our place in the natural world and in the universe. Yeah. And so this really hits to the heart of my, really my spirit and, and uh, mission in life is always going back to this thing of, well, how do we re- reestablish this connection with the natural world? And look, indigenous peoples have done this for eons. They have these, these rituals that um, allow us to reconnect with the natural world to, to understand the dialogue between humans and nature no. and, our, and our place in the natural world.
0: How effectively, just to interrupt real quick, um, do you, how effectively do you think this documentary, is, how, how effective is it in helping its viewers make that connection or find it within themselves? I'm wondering, now that you've gone through the journey, you've done the piece, it exists, it's been a number of years... Yeah,
1: it's on right. YouTube now. I just I uploaded recently at YouTube. It was like 15 years ago, but I uploaded uploaded recently. It's called Moment Utopia. Moment Moment Utopia. People can find it on YouTube. Yeah, it's still like 16 millimeter, even some 8 millimeter film mixed with some video. It's like you can get the the age of it. <laughs>
0: yeah, and what what kind of response have you had to it?
1: Oh, I mean, it was it was amazing. I I won several awards for it, and and I really you know, I would go to parties and just hand out this movie for free to people on the dance floor. Awesome. <laughs> and, and people still now today remember it. And and I get just random emails saying like, Oh, I first was introduced to you like so many years ago through this movie called Moment Utopia. <laughs> I mean, it's really quite amazing. Um, but this was really also how, I mean, this led to, to world spirit and then Bella Gaia. Um, I mean, these artists like Alex Gray really, I mean, they 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 valued this movie, this Moment Utopia movie. They could really relate to it. I was I was also connected with uh, you know th- great thinker and philosopher Ken Wilbur through Moment Utopia. So it was really a door opener for me to a new world, um, and uh, and so. Yeah. So let's see. So with, with world spirit, with, this was this Alex gray, this was being released in Japan. I was performing, you know, with my violin, with dance music, I was producing dance music, ambient music, uh, sort of progressive house trance sort of, sort of stuff. I released some music on John Digweed's bedrock label and also released music with Japanese labels. And then I get this random phone call. From this dot com millionaire, 30 something guy. He helped start Live Door in Japan, which was like a a Yahoo of Japan. And um, he is a raver. (laughs) And he's like, I really, I'm a big fan of yours. I also really love Alex Gray. I love this DVD. Um, Let's have lunch. And so when we had lunch, he was like, Yeah, I'm paying $20 million to go. To the space station as a space tourist, and as as I'm up there, I'd like to collaborate with you somehow. So <laughs> it was not your typical lunch meeting. No. And so I was like, oh my goodness, uh, seriously. <laughs> and he says, so to get things started, let me sponsor you on this trip to see my friend Greg Olson fly on the Soyuz to the space station in Kazakhstan. So we basically went on this epic journey. This was all a program, a, a business through this company called Space Adventures, which is the first space tourist company that basically leased a seat. There's three seats on the Soyuz, two for Russian cosmonauts. One was basically leased to Space Adventures for paying tourists. The price was $20 million to go to the space station. <laughs> and he did it, didn't he? Well, actually, so... <laughs> That's another story. He actually ended up not going, but the trip to Kazakhstan to see the launch of Greg Olson on the Soyuz, uh, that was, you know, that trip was what inspired Belagaya. Um, so we did go on this trip. It was just an a memorable experience going on these like um these Russian uh Soviet era like private military planes that inside was just like the smell. I just remember, I mean, it's like wooden velvet, you know, like really, I mean, it was like, Just like you think a Russian fighter jet would smell. (laughs) (laughs) And, and we were given, you know, a private tour, you know, of, uh, of Baikonur, which is the launch area. And, um, we watched the, the launch from 200 meters away, which is a lot closer than the, the public viewing spot, which is, I think, 1, a thousand a kilometer away. And so <laughs> it was very close, very loud, very bright, very powerful. Uh, I brought my violin, actually, to serenade the rocket at T-minus at 30 seconds, wow. which is also on, on YouTube. We, you can just search Kenji Williams uh, uh, Soyuz launch. And so, so after that launch, we went to Moscow to mission control uh, where we saw the the Soyuz dock with the ISS um, and really learned of the really the Russian um, resourcefulness of, uh, I mean, I think at the time, I, I could see down below me in, in mission control, they were like still using MS-DOS, I think. Wow. Um, and, you know, the Russian space program's uh, uh, budget is equal to the NASA's, um, landscaping budget. (laughs) And so, you know, just the Russian, you know, spirit of, of being able to do a lot with very little is, was in, was in full view. Uh, and as part of the tour, we ended up in star city, which is where they train the astronauts. And at that time was actually right after the Columbia accident, the shuttle accident. So NASA was collaborating and working with the Russian space program. And, and the Russians were helping NASA astronauts train and, and uh, go on the Soyuz because the shuttle was grounded. So at that time, uh, there was an American area to Star City where we basically had a barbecue thing with some American astronauts. One of them was Mike Fink, who uh, I just started talking with. Uh, it was the first time meeting an astronaut. I was very excited, and, and this was the moment of the the seed and genesis of Bella Gaia, where I asked Mike, what is it that changed when you went to space? And he told me how he, before he went to space, uh, well, he was a planetary scientist and his favorite planets were Mars and Jupiter and Saturn. Uh, but once he went to space and looked out the window and saw our Earth with this atmosphere just 20 miles thick, this borderless living blue bubble of life floating in the blackness of space, he had this life-changing experience. Uh, The Overview Effect is what it's called. And he came back to Earth with a much greater appreciation for our planet.
0: Tell me about that. I read that term, The Overview Effect, and I had never heard it before. But tell me a little bit about what that means
1: and why that was so impactful for Mike. So it's actually a book uh, written by Frank White uh, called The Overview Effect. it's basically documenting, you know, various, many astronauts who have this life-changing experience, seeing the Earth from space. It's, it's, it's almost like a religious experience, a, a life-changing experience um, that is, uh, became basically, you know, my inspiration of how could I replicate, how could I simulate that transformative effect to those of us who can't yet go to space. And so this was really my meeting Mike and his story of transformation was my inspiration to figure out how can I bring this, how can I democratize this very exclusive uh, transformative experience to the rest of the world? You know, God, it's it's uh, desperately needed right now. Um, and what if that can be translated? I mean, yeah, you know, there can be... Um, drug induced or other <laughs> ways to do it, but you know I really actually coming from the underground rave scene, I really became uh inspired to figure out more mainstream ways of communicating these more esoteric topics and uh mainstream ways of transformation
0: yeah because non helping people achieve non ordinary states of consciousness is definitely one way, right, and it sounds like you'd been on you'd been down that path to some degree. And, and seen its power, yet it sounds like in what I'm getting from what I've seen of your work online and uh, the little bit I know of you, that you wanted to find something that could be more embraced by especially tr- mainstream society and integrated into our science, the way we teach science, technology, right? Exactly. Yes. Like, like all of this. And, and one thing I love too is I came across something that was either in something you wrote or on a page associated with you. It was one of the astronauts. Who said something that was right in line with things I've heard great spiritual teachers of all ages talk about, especially the Dalai Lama, talking about look beyond differences, look beyond nationality, look beyond race, look beyond you know any other differentiating factor. And this astronaut had said something like, when we were in space, the first day, we were pointing to our countries Yes, and, and the, second, the second and third day we were pointing to our continent, and by the end of the week, we were all just you know, like in awe of this one planet just pointing at one earth. Yeah, it's really beautiful. So why is this? Why is it so important to you? I mean, why? Basically, this is your life's work of helping people understand the oneness, right? Uh, that, that we are with this earth that we're privileged to inhabit. But why is that? Why is that matter to you? Why is it? Why is it so important?
1: Oh, uh, I, I can't seem to escape it in, in everything that I do in my life. I am born here to deliver this message. Because in everything that I've done, it has always, always come back to this message and mission. Uh, And I don't know, I've always really, um, I've been a lover of nature and a lover of human culture as well at the same time. I, I, I don't take the stance that that many environmentalists take that humans should just be um, eliminated from the earth. I think we (laughs) do, you know, we do uh, play a role in the magic of the universe. And uh, I think that, you know, we are just so caught up in, you know, in the drama of secular life and of, uh, of these differences that we construct around ourselves that complicate things and yeah, yeah, yeah. and the pursuit of, of materialism right of
0: accumulation consumption right and and i saw something in a video you you produced online that i really loved what you said if if i can just read three sentences um gaia uh, so first of all it's a profoundly global vision of the interconnectedness of our world Bella Gaia is an emotional experience of the planet that's beyond words. Instead of telling people that the earth is alive, we can just show you, <laughs> right? Which I love. And, and, and I didn't say this earlier in our conversation, but when I met you that day in San Francisco, as I was on my way out, you had established this, this VR in the garage. And and I, I realized people listening to this, they might've enjoyed you know hearing your story. It's, it's very interesting. It's unique. I think a lot of people wish... myself included, we could have been along with you, you know, for parts of the journey, but I, I suspect that people still might be like, huh, I don't get it. Like, is, is it, is it just a YouTube video or is it, can I watch it, you know, on Netflix or something? And I understand that it's, you produced it and you still are in dome theaters around the country with live, with like a live orchestra, but you're also, and you can correct me or expand on that, But you're also, you've gone to showing it, like helping people to experience this through virtual reality, which I got a taste of just for two minutes. And I was blown away because it really was like I was an astronaut and I had a view of the planet that, yeah, I've seen posters of, you know, the earth from space and stuff like that, but I'd never been immersed in it. And it was really, really cool. And it's something I wish everyone would have that experience. But tell me, tell me about, tell me a little bit more about the dome productions, and a little bit more about what you're doing with VR.
1: Yeah, so uh, so the production, so so after meeting Mike, you know, it was really a couple years of gestation. I didn't know what I wanted to produce, what it would look like, how it get there, and eventually, I uh, I became friends with a person at the Natural History Museum here in New York who was developing this software uh that is a a flight simulator of the universe for for planetariums kenji let me let me jump in and just ask one question and i want to pick up right where you
0: are but What I love is I love your, what I would call courage. It might not be courage. It might be, you know, stubbornness or just sheer willpower or whatever. But the fact that you're saying like, I didn't even know what I wanted or how I would get there or what it was like. I think a lot of people give up at that point. They're like, yeah, I don't know. And then they just go back to whatever, who's playing football this weekend or whatever obligations they have. What I want to know, and I, I think people might benefit from who are listening is how did you persevere in the face of this ambiguity and what was your creative support system like, like, did you have good friends or at this time, were you in any kind of artistic collective or how did you navigate through all of that uncertainty to produce, to end up producing something that's really freaking awesome?
1: (laughs) Oh, it's a good question. And, um, I guess it's, it's, I don't know. I mean, there's, it's luck, but it's also just, uh, I am just that kind of a person. I'm a real, I'm a radical, almost revolutionary. I've been like this my whole life, and some people, as they get older, sort of give up. Or, or you know, I've sort of become more, uh, you know, motivated <laughs> to change the world. Um, so, it you know, my 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 very nature doesn't allow me to sort of give up. And, and it it was a very strong emotion after meeting Mike, like, I couldn't get rid of it. And, uh, and when, you know, I really do believe in when you have something on your mind, when you're really focused on something, things emerge out of your life, out of your journey through life, they present themselves to you, and you have a choice to take up these opportunities or not, you know, so, um, So as it went along, I, I, you know, I was introduced to the software at my friend at natural history museum through, through a recommendation of someone else in the planetarium uh, dome community. And then um, at the same time I did, you know, I was very lucky. I, I, I was working, making these actually meditation videos for this, this foundation called the foundation for global community based in San Francisco. And I, they had a video that was similar. It was like astronaut quotes and satellite images, and and I was like, I you know I just came back from this this journey in in a, you know, in Russia, and um, do you mind if I just present a proposal for funding? And I was very lucky; they they granted me a fifty thousand dollar grant at the time, which allowed me to take time off from. Other, everything that else I was doing and focus straight on production so I basically started uh, rendering out you know images orbital images of floating above the earth with this software which looked extremely real uh, I mean you you know showing it to people people will think I'm remote controlling a camera on a space station it's all real satellite uh, data that's mapped on a 3d world but you can you can make it um, move as you like and like, for example, remove the clouds, which a lot of people don't realize the, uh, the real image of the earth. A lot of it is obscured by clouds. So if you want to see the detail of the terrain, it helps to be able to remove the clouds, but you can also add literally yesterday's clouds on top of it to make it look. I mean, it's like an MRI of the planet of what's happening right now. And then, um, so I started building out, you know, uh, uh, flight paths, rendered movies, composing the music to it, and then I started performing it here and there. And at the same time, I, I another significant contact with NASA popped up at an underground party in D.C. That is so, so random. <laughs> so random. And this lady was walking around with a camera interviewing the artist, and she started interviewing me. And at that time, I was, you know – this was on my mind. So she's like, what are you working on now? I was like, I want to make an experience that simulates the overview effect. I met this astronaut. I told her the whole story. And she like almost dropped the camera. She's like, oh my God, I work for NASA.
0: Wow. <laughs> so that is amazing.
1: She, she, uh, she then introduced me to her boss and I presented the idea to the boss. And then she uh, invited me to present in front of their top earth scientists at NASA Goddard. Uh, which is where they process most of the Earth satellite data. And so it was, you know, and then when I presented it at, at NASA, these these scientists were just floored. I, all I did was just combine one of their produced data visualizations with music, no words, and performed just a short five-minute sample. And they were just like jumping off the walls. Uh, wow. I mean, it was a room full of frustrated earth scientists nerds
0: really smart
1: smart people right but what you know
0: one thing i love so much about that story is that when she asked you your answer wasn't just like yeah i think maybe i want to like make i want to just want to keep making music or maybe some movies or even it wasn't as vague as like oh i want to do something with space it was like i want to do something about the overview effect you know And it was like boom your clarity and specificity made that connection all the more powerful i mean that is awesome
1: Yeah. It just goes to show you, like, if you really want to do something, just communicate it to people. You never know who you're going to talk to, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And you weren't even asking her, right? You weren't saying like, can you help me or will you help me? Or do you know anyone you were just sharing? It was like a natural self-expression, a true desire with specificity. And then boom, that's awesome. That's great. And it's proof to me, by the way, I've seen this and I I actually teach this when I work with, with people one-on-one or in workshops, I lead that, like you said, the more we share, our ideas, the more real they become number one. And number two, people want to help. Like we're naturally right. We're naturally predisposed when we hear someone in pain or we hear someone who has a desire, like we want to alleviate that pain. We want to help facilitate that desire. And, and the story you're sharing is for me again,
1: just confirmation to that fact. It's, it's really cool. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, I l- luck has a lot to do with it as well. I think these, these two moments were very pivotal. Um, there's no way that I could have preconceived it or planned it in advance. So, um, but again, opportunities come up to you. You know, being able to recognize them and take advantage of them is a very important part of, of finding your path. And so, and so after this NASA thing, you know, they were really understanding. I, I mean, I was basically my pitch was that you have to uh, present climate science, science in general, in a way that humans understand, which is not just left brain uh, statistics, but there has to be this right brain emotional channel as part of it.
0: So let me, let me, let me explore that for just a minute. And and I, I'm really, um, I'm trying to be diplomatic about how I set this up and I, I don't want to be a Trump basher and I don't want to beat up people who are like global warming, climate change, climate change deniers. But what I wonder is when there's someone like, okay, because we know data alone doesn't convince, right? You can present more facts, you can shout louder, but that's not going to change somebody's perspective. Tell me, what's your view about somebody like Donald Trump? And I have this great photo. I don't know who took it, but he's in the Oval Office and he's got his arms crossed and right behind him are these images of climate change, of global warming. And it's like, he's It's like a little child, like a sullen child doesn't want to believe it is what it looks like to me. Right. But where I'm going with this is with somebody, let's take him because he's conspicuous and he's vocal, but somebody who is so, uh, outspoken about the fact this isn't really happening. What, what do you think is effective in
1: get what I would say getting through to somebody like that? Well, let me give you a a story I, I directly had with a climate denier um who you know it was a uh it was a, a a NASA event on the Washington Mall um for Earth Day and we were in it in a a dome uh on the mall so it was sort of people walking through so in that sense I was lucky in that there was this person who walked through happened to be walking through and we started talking about climate change and he was like oh I don't you know I don't believe it it's and it was a typical argument. Um and I was actually setting up for my show and I was like, hey, why don't you just sit down and 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 check out my show because I'm about to perform. <laughs> and so he sat down and like and I I performed a 20-minute, 30-minute Belagaya show. And afterwards he came up to me and said, You know what? I think you just changed my mind. And he walked away.
0: Wow. You know, on that topic too, by the way, one thing that I'm struck by is how there was zero making wrong. Like you weren't challenging him. Like in, you know, you were inviting him. It was a true invitation with no expectation, no like telling him, well, you're an idiot or you're wrong or giving him facts.
1: And, and I think there's something really profound about that. I think, I think there's problems on both sides of the argument. Yeah. Um, And just, just pointing fingers of that your climate denier is not good enough, you know? Yeah. Um, well,
0: the other, the, the other thing about that too, and I don't, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't mean to be flippant, but I think there's something about it is you were in a dome, right? Like something, there's something special about a dome already, isn't there? Yeah, maybe, yes. <laughs> I mean, there really, there really is. I remember reading Buckminster Fuller's uh, biography and reading that he thought that we in the future, and maybe we still will, that we will all be living and working in domes means <laughs> like, you know it's like i'm i'm still working for that day the other thing about that um that i'm interested to get your perspective about because i also um used the word climate change all the way until literally about 2 weeks ago when i interviewed um paul Hawken for this show and <clears throat> you know you probably do you know paul by the way uh i don't know him personally no I I I, I've heard of him. Yeah, that was the first time I've talked to him directly. And I love that guy already. I, I really love that guy. But we were talking about the power and importance of language when, you know, sharing anything. And he helped me see that to speak about it in terms of climate change is actually inherently ineffective because climate change has been, as you know, has been happening before humans. But he talked about global warming, right? And I'd actually, I don't know why, but somewhere in the past I shied away from the term global warming in favor of climate change and he's like wait global warming is the thing that's happening yeah climate change is a natural part of existence but if we're going to be effective in communicating maybe global warming is the more per, like the more
1: accurate term what what's your view on that right well i mean i mean there's problems with both of them because you hear people saying well it's cold outside so obviously global warming doesn't exist i know that's one of the donald trump things that i'm like come on man <laughs> <laughs> and and then climate change. You're right. It, I mean, I guess a more speci- uh, correct term is anthropogenic caused climate change. Right? Human caused climate change, which is right. The proper, really, the proper term for it. But nobody can pronounce that or spell it. So that one's probably not gonna. <laughs> yeah. But here's what it comes down to. Okay, I am not really here. I mean, climate change, global warming. These are still abstract concepts, way right. out there. Yeah. And the best that environmentalists have, you know, done in communicating something emotional is maybe like polar bears are dying and like an image of a polar bear. Yeah. But what, you know, what I am here to do is to establish relationships. I am a relationship builder. Okay, I'm not an environmentalist because and this goes back to the indigenous peoples. Their rituals were there to establish relationship with the earth. With the universe, yeah, and make that uh, relative and personal. Okay, mm. and and if you have a relationship with someone or something, you will naturally protect it,
0: right, and care care for it, nurture it,
1: right, right, exactly. So this is the problem with our modern culture: is we are disconnected from the natural world. I mean, maybe for us, for those of us who who have had a lot of experience in nature or camping or you know. We have our, our relationships, but for the most part, and part of the economic system, which is also detached from valuation, correct valuation of nature, which is what's killing the earth is, yeah, there's no feedback loop with the natural world. Yeah. And so, so it continues to just uh, eat away at natural resources and, and our culture, our modern systems view the earth still as a commodity you know um so i i'm really here to establish relationship and from that protecting it will be natural yeah almost inevitable right when the relationship yeah and in the long term that's what's needed anyway we we won't be a future civilization from regulations we will be a future civilization from it's the hard way. It, it is changing our consciousness, changing our culture. Culture is the most pervasive thing uh, for the future. And it's not regulations. It has to be, we have to change who we are yeah. and the way that we relate to other things in the planet. I, I, I
0: totally agree with you. Let me totally shift gears for a moment now, a few minutes now, and ask you a series of questions that are totally unrelated to what we've been talking about. Sure. <laughs> okay, so... This is the lightning round, okay? So it's about 10 questions. I've designed them to be a short question. You can take as long as you want to answer them. But my aim in this portion is to minimize or even completely eliminate my commentary. Okay, so I'm gonna ask the question, let you answer. So, all right, are you ready? Uh, Ready as I'll ever be. (laughs) Okay. Number one, please complete the following sentence using something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a
1: A whirlwind with a jewel at the middle.
0: Okay. Number two, what's something you wish you were better at humor and comedy. Number three, if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt on it, t-shirt with a slogan or a saying or a quote or a quip on it, what would the shirt say?
1: Uh, love your mother.
0: Okay. Number four, what book, you have that shirt already, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Number four, what book other than your own, have you gifted most often gifted or recommended most often?
1: Uh-hmm. Um, Ken Wilber's a uh, uh, brief history of everything. Why? It really helped me understand. Um, the problems of our of of humanity right now hmm. uh yeah number 5
0: so you travel a ton what's one travel hack something you do or maybe something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable
1: uh i i'm sort of an avid biohacker so i bring a lot of supplements um i feel they really help me so Anywhere from vitamins to all sorts of amino acids and things to help you sleep and fix your jet lag like melatonin and um, yeah, uh, I think it really helps. Mm. Caffeine or no caffeine?
0: Oh yes, caffeine. (laughs) What's your preferred method of delivery?
1: (laughs) Uh, Coffee and then then matcha. Mm.
0: Number six. What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well?
1: I have started uh, to, since I, I love biohacking, I've I started taking Bacopa at night. What is that? Bacopa is a Himalayan herb that is, is most typically used for uh, by, by um, Buddhist monks, actually, to stay awake. It's a great um, neural enhancer. But... I have a friend who is working with um, Stanford researchers on telomeres, extending telomeres, your DNA strands, that supposedly is the key to longevity. And taking Bacopa um, is uh, effective in extending your telomeres. Interesting. Where do I get my hands on some of that? It's it's very cheap. You can get it. Um, it's it's the, the company is... Called Called uh, Himalayan herbs, I think. And how do we spell Bacopa? B-A-C-O-P-A. Just
0: like it sounds. Okay. What's one thing you wish every American knew?
1: Hmm. Good question. (laughs) That um, our democracy is at great risk right now. And the the promise of this country is yet to be fully realized, and it's in great danger right now. And what is your
0: recommendation, given that risk, given that reality? What's your recommendation or your exhortation, to use a $5 word,
1: for people? Um, Vote. (laughs) Vote. Vote and also um, organize, educate, communicate, connect with each other, um, surprise yourself in reaching out to the other side and uh, yeah, I mean I think and and also you know I mean for humanity in general, I think we 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 put our belief in technology too much. And uh, and there still needs to be this human consciousness evolution. You know, I think technology is only as useful for the positive sense when it grows or evolves in tandem with human consciousness. And we, we tend to sort of look at technology, you know, just very naively um, as the answer to all our problems. So... Um, yeah, I mean, uh, this is, you know, with I've been very much getting into blockchain, its potential. I think there's a lot of naivete around blockchain, to be honest, in that, again, we're like putting all our eggs in the blockchain basket, like it's going to solve all our problems, all this kind of stuff. But there's not enough understanding that actually, you know, I mean, decentralized cooperatives have actually existed in America, in Europe. And these um, are, are, you know, analog decentralized. I mean, in some ways, America democracy is pretty decentralized as compared to European democracies, yet we don't realize this value and take advantage of it. And so, in many ways, um, we need to strengthen what's right and try to understand how to fix the things that are wrong, but even just understanding what's right and wrong is, is an educational challenge, you know? Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Especially because people's perspectives on that differ so much.
0: Right. <laughs> okay. Uh, number eight, what's one piece of advice that your parents have given you that has made an impact on you or sit with you?
1: I, I mean, I think my, my parents were a great part of my, Uh, success in that they are they were always supportive of what I did and so that in itself I realize you know a lot of people don't have and so I feel I'm very lucky in that way yeah I have a lot to thank for my parents so what is your next big project so um you know people ask me that a lot and there's really nothing more that excites me than growing Bella Gaia. Like Bella Gaia is the culmination of my visual, uh, passions with, with, uh, film, my musical, pa- uh, passions with composition of music and my live performance passions, which brings that sort of real human ritual component and the power. There's nothing more powerful than a live experience. So I basically want to continue to scale this. I every, The most common comment I get after Bella Gaia shows, oh my God, everybody in the world needs to see this. <laughs> and so it has been, you know, that's the next step is how can I scale Bella Gaia? It's 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 gone 10 years growing and evolving from just me performing the solo to now an, an ensemble of Dancers and 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 live musicians, planetarium shows, the VR thing, um, but it's mostly been in the art world. We tour to art performing art centers, but I, you know, it really to scale it needs to enter now the entertainment business. So it has been um, the plan to how can I, on a production side, make guy an entertainment product that is now more competitive with, like, Broadway or Cirque du Soleil. So that means uh, raising the production value in uh, in the way that we give people the experience. The overview effect doesn't change. It's more the um, live performance and dance components where we visit different countries around the world um, and have this cultural exploration. But I've developed a holographic projection method of interactive holograms with dancers
0: no big deal i've just developed this hologram
1: i mean that's pretty awesome tell me about like how did that happen that that happened uh through again an invitation from the dean of arts and sciences at the university of colorado boulder ironically um it wasn't because i was alumni or anything i was performing at this at this uh science conference for the executive uh board for cu boulder and the dean came up to me and asked we've never had an artist in residence but would you be our first artist in residence for wow. us just write a proposal on whatever I wanted to do and basically it was like I've always wanted to develop an R&D a, a holographic uh, projection uh, system and methodology and the creative direction behind that so that's what I did for 2 years was developing this this, uh, R&D of holograms interacting with dancers and performers. And we presented it at the uh, Conference on World Affairs in April of of last year. And actually somebody from Cirque du Soleil's innovation department was there and said, this is beyond even what we're doing. Wow. And certainly, you know, we've seen holograms enter the entertainment space, I think, Beyoncé had, you know, some holograms that are on, you know, in some concerts, but nothing yet to the sort of detailed, refined interaction and storytelling that we're developing. So what our holograms are doing are is real uh, interaction, but with a story, you know, we've seen a lot of eye candy, a lot of playing around, but nobody yet developing things around a meaningful story. And so, This is super exciting. You can see, actually, a a three-minute video on our site. If you go to holograms uh, on bellagaya.com, you can see a sample. So, basically, I want to combine these holograms in a dome to tell the whole Bellagaya story. Um, And so, this is what we want to scale up as a production in a destination, a location-based entertainment venue that we run ourselves, like a Cirque du Soleil tent, We run our own theater. People come to us. (laughs) We have daily shows. That is a is a ticket revenue model that can scale. I totally believe that this will be a legacy hit show. I mean, if you think of the Lion King, for example, twenty five years. Yeah. It's the same show every day. Two thousand people sold out. I mean, it's pretty incredible how many people (laughs) over twenty five years have now experienced. You know, Lion King. Yeah. Um, what if we could do that with a transformative story? I think I think people are hungry for something more, uh, you know, timely and more meaningful, more deeper. And what if we could attach to that uh, entertainment show a way for people to actually get involved and act? And that is also the whole back end that we want to develop is. That's another thing and problem right now with Bella Gaia is after the show, everyone's like jumping off the walls, like, what can I do? I mean, sure, I can give them a list of things to do, but what if we could actually create through blockchain applications um, very easy ways to make change in the world and verify that change so people have this sense of agency that they can make a difference. That's also part of the problem is Oh, I can never make a difference with climate change. It's too big. It's hopeless. It's this sort of fatalist um, mentality, and I think, you know, that's part of the problem. We need to give people this feeling that they can make a difference, and they are making a difference. You know. Yeah,
0: I, I, I totally agree with you, and I think it I think it is a form of insanity at some level that we know that we've created this as a collective you know, as a group of individuals, it's happened yet. We'll sit back and say, well, I'm just one person. What I do doesn't matter. It's like, you know, it's like damage, you know? So I totally get that. Well, if people, so I do have a few more questions for you about your creative process, but before we turn to that, I want to, I want to make sure we get this in here. Um, If people want to learn more from you or connect with you, what should they do?
1: Email me. Um, I, I try to reply to every email I get. Uh, Kenji at bellagaya.com, K E N J I at B E L L A G A I A dot com. Or come to one of our shows. Uh, we have a whole uh, a tour, a big tour lined up already for this coming winter and spring. Um, you can find it on our events page.
0: Yep. And this is 20, 2018 as we record. We're in December of 2018 as we record. This will probably be released in January of 2019, just to give people an understanding when they're listening
1: to this. So yeah, we have February shows, uh, April shows. Um, so yeah, a lot happening June awesome. in Houston, I think. Yeah.
0: That's great. And they can find, as we've talked about already, some of your videos on YouTube, they can also find your music in iTunes Yes, and, and elsewhere online. Yes. I'm sure. Awesome. So I also, to be sure that I communicate this to you before our time is up, I want to let you know that as an expression of gratitude to you, Kenji, for making time to talk with me and share your wisdom and your experience with everyone listening, that I have gone online through kiva.org, uh, where I have a lending team, and I have made a $100 micro-loan to an, uh, a female entrepreneur uh, named Swati, who lives in Nadia, India. Turns out this is a 29-year-old married woman who's raising a household of three and her monthly income is only about 120 us dollars. So I believe wow. she'll be able to make a significant difference in the life of her herself, her family, her community, because she'll use this money to help expand her clothing business by purchasing an additional stock of shirts and pants and, and things. So to think, express my gratitude to you in that way. Oh, you just gave me chills. <laughs> wow. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you for yeah. what you're doing. Yeah, no, it's, it's my pleasure. Okay. So the last part of this I want to turn to is just a few questions. As I said about your creative process I've got, as I was, um, zeroing these questions in yesterday, I was like, man, we could do a whole interview just on, on this, but, um, let me, let me start by asking you because you're such a multifaceted artist you know, music and visuals, like you said, and you've done stuff with a spoken word and you do things around the world. What's a typical day for you? Like
1: (laughs) it's, it's, it's very boring. (laughs) It's a lot of emails and communication. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, actually these days, the life of an artist is mostly managing and your creative time is quite little. Um, but yeah, my, my creative time is in bursts, you know, like there it is centered around projects and uh so so most of my time is is coordinating schedules emails management um and writing proposals (laughs) uh
0: yeah that makes sense and i think that's probably the less sexy side but a critical side if the work is to reach an audience right and and i actually think of a metaphor that i saw When my dad spent a whole bunch of money to build a motorsports park, a big race, you know, a place for cars and motorcycles to to drive. And I saw this thing that people who were extraordinarily talented racers, it actually didn't matter how good they were if they couldn't find sponsorship, right? Then they couldn't find the the money they needed to get on the track to support the cars, you know, and, and motorcycles and stuff like that. And I think art is in some ways the same way. Where maybe that model of a patron, you know, the artist and the patron, whether the patron is a general public buying tickets or books really hasn't changed a lot. But how do you, how do you think about that and balance and also balance your creative time? If If it takes both the administrative and the creative, how do you not let the, the management impinge on the creative? And how do you think about that kind of patron model that I just talked about?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a challenge sort of switching, you know, modes from from left brain to right brain right you know um i you definitely i i definitely need time to switch to a more creative mode i I sometimes just dedicate the whole day to that or a series of days when you do that what does it look like do you work alone do you start early do you brew tea do
0: you like what is it
1: you know what do you do i i mean i i have to be alone um and it's it's challenging i'm a father i have two kids young kids so Uh, there's a lot of juggling going on. Uh, so, and, and also when I I do travel a lot, so that actually does help me in, in sort of finding a different mental space. Um, so I do find myself creative a lot on the plane or, uh, when I'm traveling. Um, so, so that really helps. And, and also when you do collaborate with other artists, you're now creating like a dedicated space and time with a deliverable, you know, you're also taking other people's time. So that that really is a great way to create focus, you know. Um and focusing with other artists, there's just something really amazing about that. Uh on the funding end, I mean it's that is just always the challenge, right? I mean I think I was very lucky at the start of this in winning actually not just one fifty thousand dollar grant but two of them. So it was a total hundred thousand which which got me off the ground. And then um we ended up I didn't mention this, but we ended up, uh, winning a NASA grant, a half a million dollar NASA grant to use Bella Gaia for, for K through 12 education for kids. Wow. Um, I took, it took four tries applying through the NASA portal. These are 100 page proposals wow. each. I mean, Amazing. it's no joke. Um, but we won and frankly, this was the most artistic, you know, based program that NASA's ever funded. Um, and then, and then the administration changed and the education budget <laughs> dried up. Uh, so since then, we have, you know, I've basically uh, grown Bella Gaia just from, from booking uh, fees and then occasional commissions from universities, uh, occasional small grants here and there. And we just set up our 501c3, Beautiful Earth Foundation, um so we are going to start to put energy into that in in building out a board and and fundraising through that and then there's the for profit side uh now we have a business plan for for a Bella Gaia llc which is which is going to be created uh and and also i i am partnering with this amazing japanese company uh that does exhibits uh like immersive exhibits projection mapped exhibits uh, they're called naked uh, incorporated and they they do these amazing amazing um, all nature based themes the most famous one is called flowers so it's it's whole sort of walkthrough exhibit of digital flowers physical flowers you know like uh, just everything you can imagine it's wow, that sounds amazing where can where can we see that um, if you maybe google flowers naked Tokyo some some videos might come up. I'll bet some interesting things would come up with that search. <laughs> By the way. <laughs> yeah, no. I think I think their homepage is is let's see, Naked Inc. Oh, Naked I hyphen ink. Okay. Um, yeah. If you do naked ink, yeah, I mean naked dot com or something, something else. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but no, that sounds amazing. And my wife is a master gardener and we've actually gone to the Chelsea Royal Flower Show before. Okay. So I'll bet this would be amazing it sounds cool
1: so these guys i mean they, they get a hundred thousand people coming through a month um so this is actually a really great combination package that i'm wanting to bring to the u.s is a bella gaia theater yeah. surrounded by a naked flowers exhibit so sounds incredible um yeah it's it's turning out to be a really great partnership
0: um yeah, and Kenji, one thing you didn't say, so I'll go ahead and say it. And again, you can add to this or correct anything that I might get wrong. But Bella Gaia and you have won Science Media Awards, the Fisk Full Dome Film Festival, the My Hero Award, the Macau International Full Dome Festival, the Transformational Film Festival. You've been at Sundance, right? I mean, this is not like just your. Kind of side project, as people who've listened all the way to this point know, but what they might not know is like this thing really is freaking awesome. And if they get a chance or make the make the time, exert the effort to go see it,
1: um, I think they'll love it. I think so too. Uh, it's it, it'll it really always surprises people past their expectations. You know, it's hard sort of separating our image from oh, it's another environmental. <laughs> Film or something like that—it's completely different, and it is—it uh, is deep. It is a journey. It is uplifting as well as uh, meaningful. And so, you know, it is a prerequisite to a future culture. And I think everybody should see it, um, be inspired by it, and yeah, I'd love to meet meet you there. Yeah, awesome.
0: Okay, so the last very last couple questions—I want to turn in very like intentionally. Turn our thinking, and I'm Kenji. I'm kind of enlisting your help in even formulating the the question to ask, which is: if you now imagine the people listening to this who are maybe working in a nine to five, maybe they're not, maybe they don't have a job, maybe they're a stay at home parent, um, maybe they've done charitable or philanthropic work to this point, but they know they want to use their strengths, gifts, and talents in service to others, doing what they love, probably through some kind of creative expression. What, but for whatever reason, financial or just they haven't had confidence in themselves, or you know, maybe they've been told that they, they to, to do something practical or whatever. What kind of advice do you give to somebody who has this? They they've maybe even felt this calling for years, but they haven't followed it. Like, what do you, what kind of encouragement or advice do you have
1: for them? What should they do? What should they definitely not do? Just do it and never give up. <laughs> I mean, uh, that's those are the two recommendations I can give. You know, if, if you feel this calling and have these fears of, Oh, how am I going to make money? How, how will I support myself? These are really just uh, constructed fears. If you truly believe in what you want to do, there has to be a point where you have to take that risk. And, um, And it's not an easy path. You know, my life is not easy. I'm not independently wealthy. I took a lot of risks. It's up and down. Um, But at least I'll die knowing that I did my passion. I followed my passion in my life. I will have a sense of self-worth. I will feel satisfied if I die tomorrow. And that's how I live my life is, you know, I might die tomorrow. What do I want to do? I think that's how everyone should live their life and so, you know, don't waste your life if you're not happy with your job, quit and and you know and do what you want to do, follow your passion, don't give up. It won't be easy, but um and it's never a straight line, you know. Um but I would just say follow and listen to your feelings and your emotion and your, your deep sense of motivation, you know, meditate meditate, and understand where you want to go, what your true self is telling you. Uh, if you truly do want to feel, live a fulfilling life, um, and if, if just making money is your passion, then that's fine. <laughs> uh, so just follow your passion and, and don't give up. I, I, love, I
0: love that advice, and I love what you say about the, it's not a straight line. Right, because that's part of the magic, and and sometimes the misery of the creative process is that it's definitely not a linear, a linear thing. But you mentioned the word passion, and and that's something I used to encourage people a lot as well, and I still am a proponent of. But what I've what I've discovered is that some people find that to be kind of a heavy word. They're like, "What if I don't know my passion?" You know, or how how will I know? How can I find out what my passion? Or or I have a lot of passions. You know, like I'm just so curious. Like what. What do you say to somebody that that responds with something like that? Like passion's not actually a useful, you know, piece of the advice. What
1: what, what do you say then? Uh, what tickles your fancy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, you know, try whatever interests you have. Try it. If it's pottery, you know, um, try a little pottery, and uh, if you like it, keep going forward with that. Um, I I think it is really you never know, you can never preconceive everything anyway. And, and finding your passion is the journey. That is, that is the joy of, of life, is, is finding your passion. And um, when I first met Mike Fink, I, it was just a feeling. I didn't know what it would be. I never, I never realized it would be like a career uh, in delivering the overview effect to, to people. But it was just this sort of um, feeling inside of me and a drive. And I guess part of that is more on a deeper level as a human being, being more in touch with yourself. If you're completely disconnected from yourself, then, yeah, you won't be able to listen to yourself or listen to your own, you know, your your own feelings. And so part of this is self-development of, 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 meditating i guess or finding your own way of of therapy um for me the the opening of the door was was psychedelics the kind of the rave culture of the 90s the 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 dancing you know and trance induced collective feeling of being one with a bunch of people in an ecstatic state uh You know, these sorts of things allow you to go deeper into yourself and to really find your true spirit. I think. Yeah. So it is an internal journey to find your passion. I think so. Yeah, I I think so. Tell me about if you ever had
0: a moment where, because I've had this, and and I've talked to other people who've who've actually had this as like a moment where it got like it became very clear that there are certain people. Who will lift me up and certain people who will like bring me down. And if I want to go a certain place, it's going to, it's going to be conducive to me getting there to consciously surround me with a certain kind of people, or even in some cases, a certain person and to let go of or diminish other relationships. I know that's kind of an abstract thing, but I'm wondering How, like, first of all, if you ever had a specific instance where that became clear to you and, and second, like if that would factor into any advice you would give people also who, who want to be, or who maybe already are on a creative path
1: about a community or relationships deliberately, you know? It's all about relationships and surrounding yourself with the right people, you know? And, and that is the only way how Bella has survived this long. It's not like I've had a, a regular patron this is my, my team is still with me after 10 years because of relationships of because of healthy relationships. And that's both personal and financial, you know, you have to have good business relationships, but also good personal and sort of have this emotional intelligence and social intelligence. Um, and, and certainly surrounding yourself with other inspiring, inspiring people who uplift you is so much a part of it, you know, um, you know, just if someone's bringing you down or just mocking you or making bad jokes about you, just leave them. I mean, th- there's no purpose for them, uh, to be in your life. And yeah. so you have to surround yourself with, with good people. Yeah. Okay. So
0: I think this is my last question. Um, but what I, what I really want to know also is how, cause I heard you talk about yourself. You're like, well, I'm just a person I, I never give up. I, you know, and in some way, like it's admirable, but in, in some ways, I think for people listening, it's not useful because they might be like, well, that's him, but that's not me, right? So maybe what could be useful is how do you manage your own psychology, right? Like how do you preserve whatever, however you would term it, remain an optimist, preserve enthusiasm, like get up, pick yourself up when you're down, like what kinds of things do you do, you know, consciously or even naturally that weren't necessarily conscious that help you to really effectively manage your your state
1: yeah it's 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 really tough sometimes um it's really about these relationships it's it's if you're feeling down or hopeless um if you have established these relationships with other people who will come back to you with a piece of news that you know you had talked about earlier and you know there will be more you're sort of like um spreading your good intentions among more people that will later come back to you in a time of need. And so uh, that I think really has been critical for me. Um, And this also comes in the form of business, you know, I I may put out a a proposal or a request in the interim, I feel really bad. through something else. And then maybe when that proposal is successfully come back, it it helps. Of course, most proposals are denied, (laughs) Um, which, you know, people should get used to, like, literally, I think, I mean, this is the artist's life, you know, get ready to receive a no answer most of the time, you know, like 80, 90% of the time, it's, it's hard. So you have to get used to no most of the time. So it, it really is is so important to believe in yourself, to know that you are you are doing the right thing and that you are talented. And and here's the thing, you know, okay I'm gonna bring up Trump, okay, because as 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 controversial as he is, as much problems as he's creating, I do like, find inspiration in one thing that he does, which is he is able to convince people of anything. Oh, yeah. He is a very good uh, convincer. And why do, why do you think that is? I mean, he he has, like, re-engineered his brain to literally believe in anything. And uh, the problem is I don't think most humans are like that. <laughs> but we can take inspiration from... When you talk to people, you have to put on this confident feeling, and you have to know it and feel it and And Trump is so good at that. I yeah. mean, he's sort of ingrained it into, into his DNA, even if it's completely false. Yeah, I, I mean, just yesterday
0: that that thing about his words, the beautiful clean coal industry right. like, that's like a, such an oxymoron, that's like jumbo shrimp, <laughs> you know that's not even a thing, but but the thing and and I love what you're saying, too. Um, because I think there, this is something I teach and I'm fascinated by is that we ultimately believe whatever it is we believe because we choose to, but most people don't choose their beliefs consciously. Right. And when we choose our beliefs consciously, we live a different life or it's available. It's possible. We can do it in any moment, but going back to what you were saying about rejection, because I think this is one of those almost paradoxes, but it's also a place that exposes that ability to be conscious in our choices, which is this, asking, yeah, asking, asking, realizing that a majority of these asks are going to be declined, but nevertheless, asking with the expectation of a yes, right? Because I think, and I know this is a little bit maybe metaphysical, but if somebody asks expecting to be shot down, more likely to be shot down, right? So how do you Ask with the expectation of a yes, while you have the awareness that the statistics are the majority of these are going to be declined.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You have to really um, make sure that you're in check that put, put, you know, things in perspective. (laughs) Um, It's hard because you you have this like dream. And if we just get this, then this can happen. And I really want to do it. And so... I obviously get down if I if there's a rejection of something I really care about of course. Um but you have to always like get back on up on your feet. It's a new day every day. Um and you know smile. I mean actually scientists have proven that just physically smiling actually does change your brain.
0: It does. Yeah, your phys- your physiology.
1: Absolutely. So, uh you have to figure out some tricks that will sort of get you out of this. Um, I mean, for me, yoga really helps, uh, exercise really helps. Um, and I mean, my, my two daughters just are completely full of life and, uh, uplift me. Um, really surrounding people that love you, uh, in your life is, is, um, critical. Yeah. It, it, it makes
0: all the difference. Let me ask you if you ever have this experience um, because I see this as I observe myself and it it actually bothers me a, a little bit, which is when I receive good news, like something that pleases me and then I feel good, I feel good like re, reactively. I'm like, oh yeah, that proposal, you know, that I got that deal closed or or whatever, that good thing happened and then I feel good and then I actually hate that I feel good because I hate that my... Like my emotional response is dependent upon something that happened. Do you ever have that?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's sort of verging on a, a little bit over analytical, like analyzing yourself, but yeah. I do know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Because
0: in the same way, like if you feel down because something didn't go your way, the inverse of that is just feeling good because something did go your way. And I find myself going, I want to be free from both. You know what I mean? Like, so I'm wondering if you ever have that, that experience.
1: Dualistic. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so. I, I, yeah, I mean, I think, um, Part of the challenge and goal is to, is to detach yourself personally from your projects. Yeah. Not always easy,
0: right? Especially when you've invested years and years in this. Yeah. But who was it that said high intention, low attachment, something like that? Right. Huh? Yeah. See, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, beautiful. Um, that, that'll be my new, my new t-shirt. <laughs> okay. You, you can put it on the back. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Awesome. Well, Kenji, this, this has been so awesome. I, I really appreciate you making time to talk with me and to share, like I said, your wisdom and your experience and, and to allow us all along on the creative journey that you're on is I've had, I've had so much fun. I've had a
1: blast. Yeah. yeah it's it's, it's a privilege. Really Thank you. Yeah. It's an honor to be here and, and really great conversation and inspiring, uh, talking to you and, and this has been really fun. Yeah, I think so.
0: Okay, and to everybody listening, um, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I really hope that you connect with Kenji and see a show of Bella Gaia. I believe for you, as it has for me, it will change your life. It it was, like I said, two minutes on on a VR headset in a garage, and uh, I knew it was something I wanted to share with other people. I want to experience it in a dome. I hope you do, too. I hope that you've taken something away from this that you will apply in your own creative pursuits to make the difference that you're capable of making. So with that, I'll say thank you for listening. And until next time, everybody take care. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work,